This is the Walking Home from the ICU podcast. I'm Kelly Dayton, a nurse practitioner and ICU consultant. I help teams create awake and walking ICUs through evidence-based sedation and mobility practices. By hearing from survivors, clinicians, and researchers, we'll explore how to give ICU patients the best chance to walk out of the ICU and go home to survive and thrive. Welcome to the ICU Revolution. Welcome to Restoring Life in the ICU. Today, I have Angela Hallstrom with me. She's a physical therapist in an ICU in Salt Lake City, Utah. She is a shining star in the ICU with mobilizing patients in critical condition. And she's gonna share with us some of her insights and her experiences. Welcome to the show, Angela. Thank you. So Angela, from your perspective, why is activity during critical illness important? Well, first of all, we'll state the obvious. Um, studies have shown that one week of bed rest increases the loss of strength by 10%, and that's in a healthy individual. Um, bed rest also um, increases the weakening of the diaphragm, so causes further respiratory issues. We have increased length of stay, increased intubation time, Without activity, there's also evidence that shows decrease in cognitive functions. Um, there is a decrease in the serotonin level. So there's decreased cognition from that and also decreased appetite, which we already struggle with in our critically ill patients. Um, there is sleep deprivation from bed rest. There's sensory deprivation. There is a loss of self-esteem, a loss of um, individual functioning, which affects people's outlook. And um, another part that uh, we don't want to neglect is the intestinal system. We have decreased um, mobility of the intestinal system, which causes patients to be constipated. And we also get abdominal distension from that. Uh, also, we have uh, the um, incidence of DVTs that increases with bed rest and um, we limit the uh, or increase the um, incidence of skin breakdown with prolonged bed rest. So when patients come in and they're you know and there's septic shock or they're you know they're they're in life-threatening condition they have these other ailments why why is it so important why is that suddenly a priority to get them up and mobilized we know that all of those adverse um, effects that you're describing, where is the balance, I guess? There's always concern, especially with um, some of our bedside staff, that there's a fear of falling, there's, you know, there are all these risks involved in mobilizing people, but it sounds like from what you're saying is that we're risking more when we leave patients in bed. So how, do, how does mobility become such a priority even during critical illness? Well, there are risks of mobilization, and luckily um, in our hospital, I work with a very good team, and we collaborate with physicians, respiratory therapists, physical therapists, nursing staff, to make sure that the patient is kept safe. Um, it's 
it, it goes in increments. A patient might be critically ill and they might not be able to get up and walk, but maybe they can get up and sit at the edge of the bed or stand at the edge of the bed until they are safe to do more. And um, it's a team approach and we monitor their vitals and the risk, I think, of getting them up is, is you know, the risk, the, the decrease of risk from not getting them up is definitely outweighed. So we have more to benefit from getting them up than letting them lay in bed. And we do monitor them to make sure that we have it successful because if, it's, if it is successful, then the patient is more apt to do it again. Oh, I like that. The patient is more apt to getting to doing it again. So why is early implementation, why is early mobility so important? Why, why not, you know, let them be sedated for a few days and then when some of this uh, critical illness is more resolved, then try to get them up? Well, because like we said earlier, there's 10% loss of strength per week. Um, their lungs are going to get worse and the patients sometimes get complacent with laying in bed because they that's their safe zone and they don't know what it's like to get up and move and how they're going to feel if they do it. So there's a fear factor involved and then we're, we're, we're fighting or a, a battle with their respiratory status decreasing, their cognition decreasing, you know, their, you know, possibly sleep deprivation, anxiety increases. So there's other factors that we need to consider when we're just laying the letting the patient lay in bed because we're, we're, we're losing time to get them better. Perfect. And how do you determine who is safe or able to do what activity? I see you work and I think you're a Houdini. You are a magician. How do you determine who can get up? Well, again, I, I correlate getting them up with the medical staff and we assess the patient in bed, we check their strength, can they move their legs against gravity, do they have sitting balance? There's a lot that goes into account. Sometimes we just have them stand for a minute at the edge of the bed and take some side steps. Um, but usually if they can hold their trunk up at the edge of the bed and they can move their legs against gravity, they are good to go, they're good to try. Even if we have to take the ventilator there, they're usually successful at it. Um, I've seen people that come in and can barely walk to the bathroom, barely walk to the kitchen. They usually use a jazzy or a scooter to get around. And then you have them walking 200 plus feet around the unit with a ventilator in tow. How, how do you do that? I, th I think a lot of the problem is patients will do what, they're, what they feel they're expected to do. And if they haven't been pushed or encouraged to walk before, they're scared and we get a lot of patients doing more when they leave here than they did coming in because we build that confidence in them. I tell them I believe in them and I, you know, if we, if we don't believe they can do it, if we have, as a team don't believe they can do it, they're not going to be motivated to do it. We need to instill that um, confidence in the patient that they can do it. And then once they, they do it, they, they feel better. I've had people tell me before that they never tried it because nobody believed that they could do it. And, you know, I just always tell patients, I think you can do it. It's a team approach and we, you know, take a little bit at a time, but people, people like to be independent. So they, you know, they just need encouragement. They need us to, to understand, they, they need us to show them that we believe in them. I like that people, 
like to be independent. Some people come in and they're already dependent, but you allow them to still take a role in their journey. Yep, that's what they know. They they know independence, um, but they they've been secluded. They haven't been forced to try it. And I, I shouldn't say forced. They haven't been encouraged to try to do more because people don't believe that they can do it. But they are surrounded by people who believe in them. It's amazing what people can do. If you've been listening to this podcast, you're likely convinced that sedation and mobility practices in the ICU need to change. The ICU community is facing incredible difficulty with the trauma from the pandemic, staffing crisis, and burnout. We cannot afford to continue practices that result in poor patient outcomes, more time in the ICU, higher healthcare costs, and greater workload for the ICU team. Yet the prospect of changing decades of beliefs, practices, and culture across all disciplines of the ICU is a daunting task. How does this transformation start? It can begin with a consultation with me to discuss your team's current practices, barriers, and to formulate a plan to help your ICU become an awake and walking ICU. I help teams master the ABCDEF bundle through education, consulting, simulation training, and bedside support. Let's work together to move your team into the future of evidence-based ICU care. Click the link in the show notes of this episode to find out more. I'm going to kind of take a sidestep for a second. You've seen patients that have come from outside hospitals that have already been in the ICU for sometimes up to weeks that have been sedated and been immobile, and now they're with us following this protocol. So what is it like for you in comparison to patients that are uh, mobilized and walking early to those that have been sedated and immobile? What difference does that make to you? You know, again, we talk about why is it important, early intervention important, because the longer we wait, the more time's lost and the harder it is to recover. They are recoverable, but it's, it's, it's hard and they kind of lose that sense of I can do it and they feel they can't do it at that point. Um, You know, like I said, I've had people tell me you were the only one who believed I could do it. And that's why I'm doing what I'm doing because somebody finally believed in me. And what are some of the motivating techniques that you've used? Um, part of it is I help people envision themselves doing more and encourage them by what they can do, whether it's, you know, holding a child or being able to go to dinner with family. And I am their cheerleader. I, it's equally as important for me to get patients up and moving and see their success. And it's like a journey for both of us. If they get better, I feel better. If they're moving, I feel better. And so it's kind of a process that we go to, through together. And when they make every gain that they make is it's a pat on the back to them. And I feel better. And I let them know that how much, how much, how much I feel. Um, that's why I do what I do because if they get better, I feel better. How do you respond to families that express concerns about the patient getting up on a ventilator? You know, people are concerned because they, it's the unknown, but we educate family first and we try to tell them why we're doing it. 
And once they see their loved one doing it and see them doing better, you know, families will start videoing them and they, they're always on board once they see that we can do it in a safe manner. And they're, they see the smiles on their family's faces that they're actually up and moving. It does make the patient feel better. Yeah, there's a huge instilled sense of hope and progress when patients are up and the family sees it and they interact with them and they help push the wheelchair and whatever they can do. Right, and we try to get families involved. Um, we give families exercises to practice with the patients. We kind of make it a journey for everybody, a journey for family, journey for patients, the healthcare workers. Um, you know, people always look better up in a chair than laying in the bed. And they for the most part, feel better. Yes, they do. Once they start doing it, they start requesting to be up. You know, and like I said, initially it's scary for them. They don't have trust in themselves, but once they can trust us and trust themselves that they can get up and it's going to be safe, they start requesting to have us see them. We just recently had a patient um, on a ventilator. I think she was on like a peep of 16 and 70%. I mean, high ventilator requirements. And every morning that I go in and talk with her, she writes on the board, her communication board, when is physical therapy coming? I need to walk. I need to get in the chair. She is waiting for you to come because that's, she's not comfortable in the bed. Hospital beds are not comfortable. Right. She's sitting up in the chair all the time. She's always requesting therapy. Um, we play music and she does her little jig and dance. <laughs> and it's, it's cute. It's just, that's when I see her smile. Yeah, that's the same one that was dancing to Michael Jackson in yep. the hall, right? Yep, and everybody in the hall, all the nurses are encouraging her. Um, it's just, it's a good environment. It's a healing environment instead of a sick environment. And I think she's walking more here than she was even at home. Absolutely, she is. She's doing much more now, and she's on a ventilator than she was doing at home. That's amazing. But she trusts herself, and, you know, we, you know, we do it in steps, so with every step, we can get the patient to trust us and trust themselves. And it's amazing. Like, you know, we said a lot of people leave our ICU doing more being sick than they did when they were presumably well when they were at home. And what's that process? Because some people, you know, some people are able to just get up and start walking on their own. Others are barely weight bearing. You fall into the wheelchair. And then what kind of what's the process of how do you balance pushing them to do more and yet um, reading signs of fatigue or instability. It's, it's a constant monitoring. It's once you work with a patient, you get to know them and you get to feel when things aren't right. Um, a lot of times I, I feel it when I walk in the room, you know, things are different. If they're struggling, we allow them to sit, we allow them to rest. Um, they trust us and we try to trust them and we don't want to, um, push so hard that, they don't trust us anymore either. We got to listen to their signs and symptoms and back off when we need to and speed up when we can. Wonderful. Trying to think while I have you here, I have seen you be a wonderful resource for assessment, prevention, and treatment of delirium. Can you tell me kind of your perspective on ICU delirium? Yes, I mean, it's, it's a real thing. And part of it I believe that really helps is having patients sleep better at night and be awake during the daytime. And that's part of what activity helps. We try to get them up, we try to have them sit up. 
in the chair, be awake during the day, and sleep better at night, which activity really helps them get better sleep. And I think that that is a, um, one way that we can ward off delirium in the ICU. Yeah, thank you. Um, how do you see your role in the grand scheme of impacting patient outcomes? Well, I tell patients that their mobility as, is as important as taking their medication, and I thoroughly believe in that. If, you know, we can, as we stated, first of all, all the benefits of activity, um, I think that it is equally as important as anything else that we do for the patients, and it's a way that they can help themselves get better instead of, you know, we give the medication, we do, you know, we do all we can medically to get them better, but they need to participate in their own wellness. And this is one way that they can. Thank you. And any Lazarus moments you want to share with us? Well, one patient, I will tell you that had told me he had been um, very sick and he had been in our hospital and he left and he went to an LTAC and then from an LTAC he had gone to a skilled nursing facility and then he came back to us and when I initially evaluated him and asked him what he was doing he had not been out of bed he was using a lift to get to the chair and he was depressed he was severely depressed and feeling hopeless and um, scared really scared and um, when he left us and it was just probably like three weeks down the road, he was walking 200 feet with just me with a walker, getting out of bed with minimal assist. And he told me the reason I got better was because you believed in me. He said, nobody believed in me before you believed in me and it allowed me to believe in myself. And so I think that that's an important part. If um, we believe we can do something, we find the means to, to do it and if it's not expected then you know if, if we don't if we don't expect it of our patients and we don't believe that the patients can recover they're not going to feel that they can recover so I think we need to be optimistic and share that optimism with the people that we treat thank you yeah I tell patients if you stay in bed that's way where you will stay yeah so true. It's the body in motion stays in motion. The body at rest stays at rest. Well, when I heard our, um, our statistics that 98% of our survivors go directly home, I immediately thought of physical therapy, as well as our nurses, that push so hard to get patients up out of bed, even and especially on ventilators and moving. I think one of the main reasons our patients in the critical care world require care after the ICU is because of deconditioning. So thank you for working so hard for our patients and doing all the right things that preserve their independence and their function and their complete lives. So. I feel fortunate that I work in a environment where everybody is on board and the nurses are on board, the respiratory therapists are on board. We all have a common theme that we want our patients moving as much as possible and to leave our ICU with a better quality of life, not just surviving but having a good quality of life when they leave our ICU. And the reason it works is because we have a great team of um, health professionals and we all have the same vision in mind. Yeah, thank you for keeping the big long-term pictures beyond our ICU doors in mind. Thank you. Thanks, Angela. If you want to join in on the conversation, 
Leave a voicemail at 801-784-0472 or reach out to me on Twitter. Schedule a consultation for your ICU, as well as find supportive resources such as the free ebook, case studies, episode citations, and transcripts. Please check out the website www.daytonicuconsulting.com. <laughs>